Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. If you don't already support us, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you can click on one of our two friendly yellow buttons, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Tuesday, June 12, 2018. All right, looking at the program notes. Yeah, we got a new one today. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Sadly, there is no shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, self-appointed apostles and apostolettes, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that is put forward for consumption by evangelicals, it's far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, and as a result of it, there are a lot of people that are being deceived, being taught things that they shouldn't be taught. In fact, the ones teaching it oftentimes are teaching for shameful gain, things that they ought not to teach, and there's just all kinds of crazy, demonic deception going on, and... Very few people seem to care, and yet this is a biblical priority, not a priority of me, the pirate Christian. No, this is a biblical priority. God's Word makes it explicitly clear that false teachers are to be silenced. They are not to be put up with. They are not to be tolerated. They are to be challenged and rebuked. And I would remind you again of what Scripture says in the uh, book of Titus, chapter 1. The Apostle Paul, this is a pastoral epistle writing to Titus about the importance of setting up, you know, pastors and, you know, putting them in the church. And here's what he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you may put what remained in order upon Appoint elders in every town as I have directed you, if anyone is above reproach, husband of one wife, his children are believers, not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of the good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And he must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught 
so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, they are empty talkers, they are deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party, and they must be silenced. Yeah, that's right. So note something here, that God wills for false teachers to be silenced by sound teachers. That's the job. So no pastor who is a Christian can say, you know, it just seems so negative. It's really not my place to be, you know, uh, you know, confronting people and saying that this doctrine or that doctrine is wrong. I mean, how arrogant of me. No, the scripture actually says <clears throat> the false teachers are to be silenced and Leading the charge on the silencing of the false teachers are the pastors. So uh, they must be silenced. They are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. That's verse 11 of chapter 1 of Titus. And then one of Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Well, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply. Uh-huh. So they, they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. I think you get the idea. Now, talking about people who are turning away from the truth, uh, we're going to start off today with a Prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, and we're going to play a very brief video for you from Bill Johnson, Bill Johnson of Bethel Church, Redding, California. And he is in this video promoting an upcoming revival that will headline <clears throat> Todd Bentley. Yeah. Now, call me a little uptight. And I might be. I just, you know, it's just, you know, Rose, bro, you're just too uptight. But call me uptight. But I pretty much, you know, have it as a standard rule of thumb that anybody who calls themselves a pastor or is a leader in the church who is promoting Todd Bentley, clearly has not met the lowest requirements in order to be a teacher in Christ's church. Uh, somebody who's studied, so showed himself approved as a workman who need not blush with embarrassment, who can rightly divide the word of truth. See First Timothy, if you know what I'm talking about. So, uh, so the idea here is, is that by endorsing this upcoming... Um, a revival, and you got to put that in air quotes, by Todd Bentley. I just think that this should show definitively to a lot of people that uh, if you were sitting on the fence regarding Bill Johnson, why you would be sitting on the fence regarding him makes no sense to me. But I mean, he's one of these guys that's so far over the line, it's not even funny. So if you've been sitting on the fence, then, hey, you know, have you considered the fact that he is promoting Todd Bentley's upcoming revival. That should tell you something. So uh, that will be uh, the first part of what we do here. Then we're going to uh, do a uh, New Apostolic Reformation update. New Apostolic Reformation update. We might have to... No, I think we'll get this all in. And we're going to go down to Israel. A, a group of people, you can find them on YouTube, called Revive Israel... Uh, they've, they've got a bunch of uh, videos that are out there and these guys are straight up NAR and the damage that they're doing down in Israel is, uh, you know, to quote a phrase from scary spice is off the chain. So, uh, the best way I can put it. And so we're going to be listening to Asher in Trotter 
and uh, he's from Revive Israel. And we're going to note something here, that one of the major features of the NAR, it, it, which is becoming more prominent, is that the uh, the word of faith heresy has found a, a prominent position uh, among many of the leaders within the NAR. Now, important to note this. The NAR does not have a central core set of doctrines. It, the NAR is a network of people who believe in the fivefold uh, ministry, believe that there are modern-day apostles and prophets and 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 that God has restored them to the church and when you know they might sit there and say well by apostle we only mean small a apostle and yet all of the apostles they point to and the things that they are supposedly doing all kind of <clears throat> fit under the big a apostle category see our youtube video on this topic by the way uh, the masting of michael brown part 2 regarding big a uh, versus small a apostles and you'll get what I'm saying. But Asher, he, he's part of Revive Israel. He's one of these uh, NAR guys down in uh, in the Holy Land, and uh, he is going to be straight up teaching word of faith heresy. We'll throw in a Catherine Runala quote just so you can kind of see the similarity. And yes, Runala herself is also NAR, and so uh, you know that will be the first half of the first hour. Second half of the, of the you know somewhere in there we're going to have to take a break. Uh, but then we're going to be checking in with uh, Rich Wilkerson. Rich Wilkerson, this guy uh, is uh, one of the favorite pastors of Justin Bieber. Yeah, Justin Bieber likes this guy big time. And uh, we're going to be listening to a portion of his message titled, Losing Your Ship. Yeah, you have to say it. I have to say it that way because that's the name of his sermon, and he'll be in the book of Acts uh, regarding the shipwreck, the uh, shipwreck that occurs uh, in, nor- towards the end of the book of Acts. And uh, what R- Rich Wilkerson does with the scriptures is absolutely just freaky abysmal. I mean, <clears throat> Narsa Jesus like you wouldn't believe, and uh, which makes you wonder, <laughs> is that the reason why Justin Bieber is so hot on this guy as a pastor? But uh, And then in hour number two, uh, we're going to check in uh, with... Um, Cindy Jacobs' pastor, Jim Hennessy, and uh, and listen to his sermon titled Process for Progress, Process for Progress. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Strongly uh, recommend you make yourself comfortable. We've got a lot of ground that we need to cover, and since we're going to begin with a prophetic Holy Orders Network Information Exchange Syndicate update, let's do this. So I was having this wedding, and and we had, we well we didn't have we shaba mm, shaba shanda yeah 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 shaba oh <laughs> shaba shaba wow shaba shanda headless headless toothless devil. Yeah, that's right. That's Heidi Baker and Shubba. So we're heading over to the YouTube channel of Fresh Fire Ministries, put on by Todd Bentley. Here is none other than Bill Johnson of Bethel Church promoting uh, Todd Bentley's upcoming revival. I think it's in New York State. Here we go. 
Hi, this is Bill Johnson from Bethel Church here in Redding, California. Yeah. America needs revival. We need it badly. I don't know. Now, I'm going to go with you on that. Yeah, uh, America needs revival. I'm sure, yes. We need, as a nation, to be brought to penitent faith in Christ. People need to be called out for their sins and their transgressions. They need to hear that Jesus has bled and died for them. And, you know, through the preaching of that gospel, God will, through his Holy Spirit and the preaching of that word, literally, you know, restore people, raise them from the grave, give them faith in Christ and and uh, and then they'll bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Uh, the United States is in much need of such a thing. That being the case, Todd Bentley should demonstrate first and foremost what that looks like by removing himself from all ministry. You know, ever been a time when we've had a greater need for an outpouring of the Spirit of God? Mm-hmm. And Billy Graham has gone home to be with the Lord. And some- yeah, it, it note here <laughs> in the charismatic world, uh, you know, it's been a few months uh, since Billy Graham passed away, and uh, the corpse is not getting any warmer. And so, lots and lots of charismatics have hung their hats and you stake their careers on this idea that there's going to be a big revival now that Billy Graham's dead and it hasn't arrived yet. Um, <laughs> Oh, no. Is he literally going to basically try to create this idea that the long-awaited prophetic revival that was supposed to arrive after the death of Billy Graham is now upon us and that Todd Bentley will be at the head of that? Oh, please, tell me that's not the case. Those two events seem to collide in my mind. God wants to release, I believe, thousands of evangelists into the earth, into our nation. Mm. We've got an event coming up with Todd Bentley and just a whole bunch of people that are crying out for the same breakthrough. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, Todd, Todd Bentley's a rank heretic and a false teacher and a con artist, and he's a liar extraordinaire. Look in the archives of the uh, Fighting for the Faith YouTube channel. And uh, last summer, we documented that he claimed that there was a resurrection from the dead at a revival he was holding in Texas near Houston and uh, claimed that some kid had overdosed on drugs and arrived at the hospital, DOA, dead on arrival, dead on arrival, and that somebody had the... Had the mind to you say, hey, wait a second, we could tune into the live stream on our smartphones of the revival going on, the Todd Bentley. And so apparently they turned their video camera, you know, their their smartphone on, tapped into the live stream, played the video feed for the corpse, and wouldn't you know it, at least the claim goes, this, this kid raised from the grave by, after watching Todd Bentley after he was dead. <laughs> yeah, and uh, of course, we called the Houston Medical Center to verify whether or not said miracle took place. And wouldn't you know it, nobody had even heard of it. And Todd Bentley promised that he would give us evidence that it had taken place and uh, and then decided that he wasn't going to and claimed that uh, hippo laws, that's what he called them, hippo laws, prevented him from doing that. Yeah, yeah. Well, put the link up with this uh, episode of Fighting for the Faith. You'll see it in the description. Uh, But uh, let's continue here. And it's in western New York, in Olean, New York, 
August 17 through 19 mm. this year. Yeah. And it's called Revival Harvest America. Mm-hmm. We're just believing together that God will use this to ignite something fresh and new. Yeah, ignite something. Yeah. <laughs> if there's ignition going on there in New York at the Todd Mentley revival, it would be ignited from the fires of hell. I'm just saying. Nation. There'll be massive conversions, massive miracles, and it will truly be a demonstration of this wonderful gospel. No, there will be no demonstrations of the gospel. Todd Bentley is a complete lying con artist and a heretic of the rankest order. So there you go. Bill Johnson, Bethel Church, endorsing and promoting the upcoming Todd Bentley revival in New York and and crossing his fingers. Oh, we're hoping that this is the promised revival. He had prophesied after the death of Billy Graham. I wish I was making that up, but I'm not. I think you get the point. Moving along. Chief, mate, what do you want to do tonight? Same thing we do every night, Pinky. Try to take over the world. The Pinky and the Brain. Yes, Pinky and the Brain. One is a genius, the other's insane. The laboratory mice, the genes have been sliced. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. Before each night is done, their plan will be unfurled. By the dawning of the sun, they'll take over the world. They're Pinky and the Brain, yes, Pinky and the Brain. Their twilight campaign is easy to explain. To prove their mousy worth, they'll overthrow the earth. They're Pinky, they're Pinky and the Brain, 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 Brain. brain. All right, we're uh, heading down to Israel. That's right, to Revive Israel. That's the name of the organization that puts these videos out, and they are associated with none other than the New Apostolic Reformation, the N-A-R. Yes, this is most certainly true. We're going to be listening to Asher in Trater, and uh, he's going to be explaining how our words change the world. Now, Part of this is a warning work for uh, you know our brothers and sisters down in Israel regarding the NAR. Revive Israel and Asher in Trater are all part of this. So is Juster. Yeah, we'll talk about Daniel Juster on a different episode of Fighting for the Faith. But we're going to note here that uh, that one of the features that is becoming more common within the ranks of those in the NAR is the word of faith heresy, that somehow our words create reality. So uh, let's head down to Israel. Here's Asher in Trotter, and uh, our words change our world. Here we go. We've been talking about how to use your tongue as a believer in Jesus. One of the things we note when we begin to understand the Bible and begin to understand God, that our words have much more importance than we ever thought. Because we now it is important to note that, like, for instance, in the epistle of James, we are instructed as Christians to tame our tongues. Um, the idea that from the same lips, from the same tongue where praises ascend to God, you then tear down or abuse and lie about your brother or sister in Christ. The, the, this, is a, this is a terrible thing. The tongue is a very difficult thing to tame. 
But what James writes in his epistle regarding the importance of taming the tongue isn't what Asher is referring to here. And we need to make that point up up, up front so you don't think that we've kind of missed the point because we haven't. We don't live in a world of evolution where matter created more matter. We live in a world... Uh, agreed. Absolutely agreed here. Yeah. The, the, the universe, everything you can see, taste, smell, touch... All of this was created by God. He spoke it into existence in six literal days. I would agree with Asher on that part. God created. And how did he create it? He created it by words. Yeah, dabarim. So we live in a world that's not just matter to matter. We live in a world that, a world that is words over nature. You see, that happens so quick that uh, if you didn't know what you were looking for, you wouldn't have missed the transition. Let me back this up so you can hear what happened, and I'll point it out ahead of time so you can see it. Making reference to the fact that the Lord, God, Yahweh, created the world in six literal days, spoke it into existence. God said, let there be light, and there was light. God said, let there be stars in the heavens. You know, he created the rakia, expanded out the heavens, and, you know, filled it with, uh, with the stars and the galaxies and all this kind of stuff. And then, you know, God said, let the, uh, let the seas team with different creatures, you know, stuff like that. God caused these things to happen, and he did so th- through, through his word. God spoke the world into existence. This is true. But what happened is, is that, and here's kind of the missing part in the word of faith heresy, is this tacit, unstated premise that we are little gods. Now, a lot of guys, they don't even realize that this is part of their, their theology. But in the earliest manifestations of the word of faith heresy, uh, Kenneth Hagen, Kenneth Copeland, and others had no problem saying, we're little gods, and they got pummeled for it, and rightly so. And so this is like the unstated premise that it's part of this theology. So, so here's the thing, is that biblical Christianity teaches not monism, but you know a dualistic universe. There's a difference between the creator and creatures. And so, you know, what, you know, God is in a different category than we are, <laughs> and and it's a ginormously different category. His ways are not our ways. Our, his thoughts are not our thoughts. We are creatures dependent upon our God. He is the self-existing one and needs nothing from us kind of thing. So uh, we are totally dependent upon him. And so although we are created in his image, that doesn't mean that we're little gods and that we that you know that in the original creation that somehow we manage the earth through our words like god did by you know speaking the universe into existence so he makes the transition very quickly i'm going to back it up just a smudge and watch the transition he goes from talking about the image of god to talking about us so quickly that you miss the transition and it, you know had he you know kind of pointed out where the transition was uh, you probably his listeners may not have believed him but see this is how quickly error can happen so we live in a world that's not just matter to matter we live in a world that a world that is words over nature no we don't live in a world that is words over nature yeah see <laughs> That that does not logically follow, nor biblically follow, and there's no biblical text that says that we steward the earth, the the adrets, uh, via 
uh, via our words. No text says that. That is a totally opposite way of looking at the world. In a certain sense, an evolutionist worldview means you are captive to the nature that you were evolutionized from, you evolved from. But the biblical worldview says you're made in the image of God, that you speak over the creation that he created by words, you rule it with your words. No, no text says that. And by the way, we've got to take a a Hebrew text into consideration here. And uh, it's found in Genesis. I believe Genesis chapter 5, the book of the generations of Adam. And uh, here's what it says. Uh, This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man, Adam. And when they were cre- uh, when they were created, when Adam lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness. And so we've got to understand something of the devastating effect of sin. And that is, is you know, uh, for instance, in Ephesians chapter two, opening verses, it says this: "And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world." following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at the work in, of, in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived, in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. And so, you know, what Asher is doing here, n- not only is he somehow putting us in the category of God, and by the way, you know, denying evolution doesn't require you to believe that you have the you know, the powers of deity to control the universe with your words. No text says that. It's important to note that uh, Adam and Eve's children were in the likeness of Adam, not in the likeness of God, and they had already fallen into sin. And so this talks about, you know, the, the, really the doctrine of original sin. And so uh, he's tacitly, in a way, kind of denying and undermining that. This is a duplicitous error on his part, but we continue. And therefore... We've studied in the book of James, chapter 3, and he said the Bible, the tongue is very important. And he said if you can perfect how you speak, you can perfect yourself. Because the tongue takes control over your body. The tongue takes control over your emotions. Your tongue takes control over your thoughts. If you struggle with sickness... All right, now we're going to take a look at what James is saying real quick here. James chapter 3 is the text that he was referencing. Here's what it says, 3.1. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness, uh, for we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able to bridle his own body. Or his whole body. Yeah, it doesn't say that if you perfect the tongue, you'll perfect yourself. That's not what James said. If we put bits into the mouth of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. 
How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue." It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and our Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water." Yeah, I think you kind of get the idea. This is a call for repentance and how we use our tongues. And it's not saying that we create reality based upon on our words. Far from it. Yeah, what Asher is saying here is literally not what the text says at all. But back it up a little bit. Listen again. Over your emotions. Your tongue takes control over your thoughts. If you struggle with sickness, change the way you talk. Yeah, word of faith right there. That's straight up word of faith heresy. Struggle with financial problems. Change the way you talk. Yeah, you can make yourself wealthy just by talking better or gooder about your finances. If you struggle with negative emotions, change the way you talk. If you struggle with negative thoughts, change the way you talk. That's not what James was teaching, Asher. If you struggle with negative habits, change the way you talk. Words come first, and then you act upon them. God spoke, and it became. Wow. Back to this again, are we? Yeah, that would make us little gods. We walk in his image. We read his word to understand what kind of words we should say. No, that's not correct either. We change our vocabulary according to the honesty and love and holiness that we see in this book. And we begin to speak and then we begin to act that way. And we begin to line up our speech and our actions according to the thoughts of God in this book. And that's how we live our life. We no, it's, do- it's true that we do line up our speech and our actions according to God's word as far as speaking truth and living our lives in accordance with what God wills for us, which we find in his law. Um, but what he's saying is not that. He's talking about our words having creative power as if we're little deities. Isn't that strange? Very exactly. Like a surgeon with a scalpel. We don't stab people. We cut exactly. We use our words on purpose to paint, to cut, to create, to build. The words are tools of the kingdom, not in hypocrisy, which means you just say something and don't act on it. We are people of heart and word and integrity. You believe God in your heart. You speak it with your mouth and you act and obey by faith, doing what he says. And you begin to straighten your life out. You begin to cre- put it going in the right direction because God created it. This understanding that your words 
are stronger than nature. If, My words are stronger than nature. Which biblical text says that? James 3 doesn't say it. Will put you in a position that you are not a slave to the circumstances of your life, but that you are over the circumstances of your life. Spoken like a true word of faith heretic. Wow. One time I want to say this. This one understanding that God created the world by words and therefore your words affect your situation changes your life so that you are no longer a slave under your situation, but you are moving your situation on purpose in the right direction. Understanding the biblical place of words actually sets you free from being a slave to being a child of God. Yeah, sadly, though, he didn't actually teach us what Scripture correctly says or rightly says regarding words. And nowhere in Scripture we told, well, because God created the universe in six days, spoke it into existence, that we managed the creation then, you know, because of the power in our words. Now, to kind of note how this is a uh, now a regular feature in many NAR churches and uh, among many NAR leaders, uh, we head down to Glory City Church in um, in Australia as we listen to Catherine Runala kind of say the same doctrine. And she's uh, this is a woman who is apostolically aligned under Shayon. Uh, but uh, listen in as she kind of says the same thing here. This is a becoming prominent feature within uh, the uh, New Apostolic Reformation. Well, I've been speaking for a little while um, these last week. I've been speaking about speaking life and what it looks like to speak life because the Father longs for us to recognize the authority and the power that we have. Right. Apparently we have the authority to speak life. Okay. In intimacy before the Lord and we begin to just allow him to hold us, to love us, to reassure us. He comes to remind us of the reality that we are to receive from him a reassurance that we are not orphans, that we're not on our own, that we're not seeking to come some way into connection with him, but we are already connected, that we are loved, that we are cherished, that we are held by him. And in that place, he wants us to remember that it's no longer we who live, but but Christ who lives in us, that we have been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, we live yet, not I, but Christ who lives in me. Hallelujah. That his name is upon me. His breath is within me. The spirit of the living God is inside of us. And then when we go to ask, when we go to minister, we don't do it in our own strength, but in the strength of the Lord. Hallelujah. And in his strength, He wants us to learn what it looks like to speak life, to speak hope, to to be as he is. That is, God who created the world with his words Mm -hmm. wants his children to be speaking creatively, very deliberately with our tongues. Proverbs 8. Yeah, yeah. Very interesting. Same doctrine, different woman, both part of the NAR. Asher's part of the NAR and... uh, Runala is part of the NAR. I think you kind of get the idea. And uh, no, you're not a little deity. Sorry. And uh, nowhere in Scripture we told that your words or my words create reality, that we're supposed to somehow take control or authority over the universe 
by speaking, you know, with our words and stuff. Yeah, that's a false doctrine extraordinaire, if you know what I mean. All right, we're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. When we come back, we're going to be checking in with uh, Wilkerson. Yeah, the, the Rich Wilkerson, favorite guy of uh, Justin Bieber. Stay tuned, don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. Your words have no power to create reality. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Python's Flying Circus Church. The management of Monty Python's Flying Circus Church would like to apologize to all of our listeners. Normally, we do parody here at Monty Python's Flying Circus Church. Unfortunately, due to unforeseen circumstances in the current miserable state of the church, uh, we can no longer parody the church because the church just parodies itself. For proof of this particular concept, uh, we now present to you um, the uh, Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. I'll tell you, three weeks ago, we did a Friday Night School of the Spirit, and we saw 12 people heal the Word of Knowledge, and 40 healed during the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. Let's just go ahead and do that and see what the Lord does. You guys okay to do a little Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey? Can you lead it? All right, Brian's going to lead us in the Holy Ghost Hokey Pokey. You can Put your right hand in, put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you put your right hand out. You put your right hand in, you dig your right hand out. You put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand out. You put your left hand in, you take your left hand Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. You put your right foot in, you take your right foot out. Put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. Shake it all about. You take your whole self in. You shake your whole self in. You do your whole self out. You put your whole self in. 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 You put your wh
started doing the hokey pokey, at first with the arms, uh, nothing, nothing real effect. But then as soon as I just started, we started doing the whole, we'll put your left foot in, your right foot in, both of my knees, you know, one at a time, I could just feel all of a sudden it's like there was no pain. I said, and you said, start checking yourself. I was just squatting down. That's awesome. Thank you, Lord, for new knees. In yes. Jesus' name. Come on. Come on. Um, I've had back problems most of my life, and a couple of we- about a week ago, my back had gone out, and it was somewhat better, but it was still sore uh, up until today. And when we did that hokey pokey, and she came up and testified, all the pain. Yeah. <laughs> Let's do it. Shake it, shake it, shake it all about. You put your whole head in, you take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. You put your whole head in, take your whole head out. And put it in, and you shake it, and you shake it all about. And you shake it, 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 and you shake it. This is Dr. Curtis Lyons. I am the presiding pastor of the American Association of Lutheran Churches. If you are seeking a church that believes that the Holy Bible is the inerrant, infallible Word of God, and accepts the Lutheran confessions because they are the right interpretation of Holy Scripture. I hope that you will take a look at the AALC. Also, if you are considering a vocation as a Lutheran pastor, our seminary has a residency program and a program available online. This is Curtis Lyons inviting you to take a look at the AALC. Check us out at taalc.org or on Facebook at the American Association of Lutheran Churches. Hey everyone, it's Rex here to tell you about a product that I use on a daily basis. It's Coffee by Gillespie. It's delicious. It's got the caffeine you need to be a functioning member of society and it's it's coffee. There's all sorts of different blends to choose from that are themed alongside the church calendar. So not only does it taste insanely good, but it's also liturgical. Somehow. All you have to do is order it online at gillespie.coffee. And it'll arrive at your door in a convenient, resealable bag filled with either whole bean or pre-ground coffee. I personally like mine as whole bean because it goes so well with milk. Ugh. Now that's what I call a balanced breakfast. So head on over to Gillespie.coffee and get some. That's G-I-L-L-E-S-P-I-E dot coffee. Rex out. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to think that, yeah, just because God created with words doesn't mean that you get to. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you and to the world. And you can partner with us. It is a partnership. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew, and your rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's made at $24.95 a month. From there, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month, and then Quartermaster at $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you would like to become a patron on Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Fans and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, we're going to be checking in with Rich Wilkerson. He's a vision-casting leader type and uh, one of the favorite pastors of Justin Bieber. So let's do this. Yeah. 
uh, Los Lobos Ministry Records and uh, their rendition, Casting Vision. So uh, we're heading over to Vu's Church, yeah, V-O-U-S, as we listen to Rich Wilkerson Jr., who happens to be one of the favorite pastors of Justin Bieber to uh, listen to. And uh, we're going to be checking in on his sermon titled, Losing Your Ship. You got to get the puh in it's, yeah, like a, you know, sailing ship. Yeah. And uh, this is just weird is the best way I can put it. One of the stranger uh, examples of Narcissus that I've seen in a while. Now, if you don't know what Narcissus is, Narcissus is where you narcissistically, love of self, read yourself into a biblical text. Eisegesis means to read in, narcissism, love for self. So you read your love for itself into a biblical text and you stick something in there that's not there. It's a weird allegorizing of texts that make the Bible about you rather than Christ. And uh, and in so doing, you end up losing the actual meaning of a text. So uh, here's uh, Rich Wilkerson Jr. and losing your ship. Here we go. 27 verse 21 says this. It says, after they had gone a long time without food, um, Paul stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice. Not Yeah, no joke. Acts 27, 21 is where he begins. He begins in the middle of a story. I mean, like towards the end of the story. We have no context. By the way, three rules for sound biblical exegesis. They are context, context, and context. And he has not applied himself to context at all. Here, we're just jumping in. I mean, it's like we're paratrooping in, you know, behind (laughs) contextual lines here in the middle of, wow. Okay, so after they had gone a long time without food, Paul stood before them and said, man, you should have listened to me. Uh, Okay. Yeah, it's like nobody in the audience there knows what's going on because he, it's not like he left off the week before, you know, partway through this story. Yeah, that's not how this is working. We continue. Sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But now I urge you to keep up your courage. Because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Last night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar and God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men. For I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Uh, it's, it's Baptism Sunday, so I think it's fitting to, to, to cross-references. I'm going to give you one more scripture. That's not always typical, but I think you can handle it today. Mark chapter 8, verse 34. If you, don't, if you can't turn there, just at least write it down. Mark 8, 34. These are Jesus' words. And then Jesus called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? I want to take a few moments today. I want to use this text as a premise to preach to you from the subject, losing your ship. Be careful with that one. Losing your ship ship is the topic i want to talk to you about today and so we- yeah already we got a problem 
And the reason why we got a problem is is because he's taken a historical narrative, which is a descriptive text, and is somehow, by his allegorizing and narcissism, turning it into a prescriptive text. So you see, the, the owners of the ship that Paul was on as he was being taken as a prisoner to Rome, uh, and they, they, had, they lost that ship, so apparently God wants you to lose yours. This is nonsense. This is utter, utter nonsense. Now, I'm going to fast forward a little bit in the sermon so that we can uh, pick up, uh, you know, where he actually gets to the teaching of this text, uh, you know, in in its proper form. But let's listen in as he continues. I love the story in Acts chapter 27. I want to take a little bit of a different take on it if we can today, and hopefully you can follow the metaphor. But let me just put the text into context. Uh, The Apostle Paul is a preacher of the gospel. Um, he's an apostle. He wrote most of the New Testament, those of us that are, that are new to this thing called church and wondering who we're talking about. Uh, Paul, he starts preaching the gospel, and if you can believe this, because he's preaching the gospel, he's arrested for preaching the gospel. Because he's doing what I'm doing, they put him in prison. In fact, many men were killed because of preaching the gospel. I think all of us should recognize how far we have come All of us should realize that the church of Jesus Christ has not advanced because of cool moving lights and because of cool trendy Christians, but rather the church of Jesus Christ has advanced because men and women have sacrificed, they have been persecuted, they've been martyred, all because they believed in the gospel. I'm thankful for our heritage. But here's the Apostle Paul, he's been arrested. Yeah, that that part's true, yes. He's gone from trial to trial to trial, yet he keeps appealing to a higher court. And the reason why he's able to appeal... Is because he's a Roman citizen. And so now finally he's appealed to the highest uh, authority he possibly can, which is Caesar. The only problem is that in order for him to appeal to Caesar, he has to go to Rome. So he has to take a ship to get there. The Apostle Paul is a prisoner on a boat headed to Rome. And he's with 276 other men on this boat. Most of which are prisoners as well. The scripture says in Acts chapter 27, you'll go home this week and hopefully you will read this entire chapter and you'll see so much more than what I'm sharing with you today. But in- Yeah, considering that you started in just the weirdest place, um, you know, to start preaching. I mean, partway through a historical narrative and you, you, there's like no context. We're, we're up to the shipwreck part, but we've skipped everything before it. Wow. Chapter 27, what we discover is we see that the Apostle Paul and the people on the ship, they start to get into some bad weather. And as they're in this bad weather, it's like the Holy Spirit gives Paul this prompting to tell the men that they should not continue to move forward. They should take a break. They should stop because the weather's only going to get worse. And so Paul gets up. He's like, hey, listen, guys, uh, I just have this prompting that I see that this is going to be disastrous. This is not going to go good. We should take a break. We should stop. We should not keep moving forward. We just need a rest. Of course, the captain and the crew, they hear Paul and they say, no, you don't know what you're talking about. You're just a prisoner. We're going to keep on going anyways. Well, the Bible is very, very clear that that little storm, it begins to gain some steam and it turns into a hurricane. The hurricane is known as the Northeaster. Seems like for 2,000 years we've been naming hurricanes really crazy names. The Northeaster is beginning to hit that ship and they are three days into a hurricane. When the men on the ship start to unload the ship, they start to throw the cargo off the ship. They, They get rid of the tackle on the ship. Now, we know that it's Luke, the doctor, who's writing the book of Acts. And he actually says in Acts chapter 27 
that at this point, every man on the boat gave up hope that they would ever be saved. Three days into a hurricane, in this ship that's starting to sink, and this is where Paul steps up and gives a great sermon. I think many times that adversity is the perfect stage for audacity. I think many times it's from the storm that the sermon, it actually preaches the best. Uh, okay, you're going to note that uh, he has a lot of people uh, reacting overly enthusiastically to some of the nonsense he's spewing, these pseudo-profound profundities that he's throwing out there. It looks to me like Rich Wilkerson Jr. is one of these guys like Stephen Furtick and others who has uh, uh, taken it upon himself to use what's called a bullpen. Yeah, this is where you have volunteers who volunteer to ooh and ah and go, whoa, and ah, you know, and react to the profundities um, because what he's saying is just absurd. Paul gets up, he's like, yo, y'all should listen to me. But you didn't. But nonetheless, listen to me now. Keep your courage. Keep your courage, for not one of you will be lost, only the ship will be destroyed. I like the fact that he says, keep your courage. See, I think many of us, I'll speak about me, that when I'm in a storm, I'm trying to gain control. Yo, give me control. Let me take control. When was the last time you were in a storm, you know, in a ship during a hurricane? On the Mediterranean. So apparently this happens to Rich Wilkerson all the time. So, you know, because when this happens to him, he, he tries to take over the ship. Uh, isn't that called a mutiny? You see what I'm saying? This exegetically makes no sense when you start basically making it clear, hey, the details here are not an allegory. This is a historical narrative. He's allegorizing this, looking for principles rather than preaching the text. What's taking place here? But God's message to all of us whenever we feel like we are in a storm is not to keep control, but to keep courage. You keep courage and God will take control. Come on, anybody believe in a God who holds the whole world in his hands? He's going to get you. Yeah, by the way, what he just said is nonsense. God is always in control whether I take courage or not. He just said that if we take courage, then God will take control bogus. This is just false doctrine straight up. God is all-powerful, omnipresent, and all-knowing, and he is already in control. He doesn't need me to take courage in order for him to take control. That's nonsense. Through this storm, you just got to keep courage. Keep courage. Not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now, this sounds like good news, unless you don't know how to swim. What, 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 excuse me? What, what you mean? The ship is going to be destroyed. I can't swim, y'all. Keep your courage. It reminds me of that scene. Did you ever see that movie, Dumb and Dumber? This is dumb. But remember at the end of the movie, I, I think it's funny. Remember that end of the movie, like Lloyd and Harry are there, and like Lloyd steps up and like takes the bullet, but he's got a bulletproof vest on, and then he jumps back up and he like takes the bulletproof vest off and like takes the guy out, and Harry's on the bed, he's like, Lloyd, what if they would have shot you in the face? And like for the first time this has occurred to Lloyd, he's like, Yeah, 
What if he would have shot me in the face? And the police officer goes, well, that's just a risk we were willing to take. They're like, good, good, good. Reminds me of this right here in Acts chapter 27. What what do you mean the ship's going to be destroyed? Yeah, just keep the courage. It's a risk we're willing to take. No, 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 you don't understand. Even if I do know how to swim, I don't know how to swim in hurricane waters. You see, the ship represents security. The ship represents stability. The ship. No, it doesn't. Where? How are you figuring that the ship represents security? <laughs> the ship is a ship, it, and they're traveling across the Mediterranean. It, it's like a car is a car when you're traveling down the highway. It doesn't represent. You see, what he's doing here is nonsense. How do you know it doesn't represent insecurity? How do you know it doesn't represent paganism? One of the ships that Paul was on had the twin idols, you know, had twin false gods, you know, carved into the woodwork at the very front of the ship. How do you know it? How do you know the ship doesn't represent, you know, bad, um, you know, lip reading? I don't see what I'm saying here. This is nonsense. This is not how exegesis is done. Represents the comfort zone. Yo, 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 no, the ship can't go anywhere. If the ship is destroyed, then my life is over. I don't know how to move on. We need the ship. Yeah, what I've learned about following Jesus is that if you're going to follow Jesus, it will always require you to lose your ship. Yeah, that, that's absurd. And yet, he, he delivered it with such, you know, audaciousness. And everyone went, Whoa, this is great. This is just stupid. I, this is, no biblical text says that Jesus is going to require me to lose my ship. <sighs> yeah, yeah, I'm losing my ship today. Here's a good word that you should write down, that you should learn, those of you that are following Jesus right now. Our church is made up of lots of people. But we here at this church that are leading are trying to inspire a generation to get on the journey of following Jesus. The faith journey. I've surrendered my life. You're you're trying to inspire people. Why don't you preach the gospel to them and God will raise them from the grave. Jesus. But here's a word that many believers, they leave out of their dictionary and they don't understand. It's the word called paradox. Paradox means a statement or a proposition that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses a possible truth. The whole gospel is a paradox. The whole faith journey, paradox. Just think about it. According to Jesus, the way up is down. According to Jesus, if you want to get, you got to give. No, but I don't understand. If I give, then I won't get anything. No, no, no. Give, 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 and you'll get, get, get. According to Jesus, if you want to lead, it starts with you serving. According to Jesus, he says, if you want to find your life, you have to be willing to lose your life. Mark chapter 8 is the cross reference for today. And Jesus says this. He says, come, follow me. But if you want to follow me, you must deny yourself and pick up your cross. You do understand that a cross is an execution tool. Meaning that we as believers, we're supposed to pick up the thing that is to kill us, destroy our ego, destroy our pride. And as we die, Jesus resurrects and he lives through us. 
It's a paradox. As we die, Jesus, what? Jesus resurrects as we die. This is, I mean, he's trying to come up with these like applause lines. It's like applause line theology here, and his applause lines are just abysmal in their theology. Wow. It doesn't make any sense. Jesus goes so far to say that when you lose your life, that's where you find it. He goes even crazier. He says, anybody who tries to save their life will lose their life. See, I think for many of us, what happens to us is that we get out into life and we have more trust in the ship than we do the Savior. Yet the, sh- the ship is going to fall apart. What? On the ship earth. is going to be destroyed. Paul says, yo, yo, listen to me. Listen to me loud and clear. Keep up your courage. Not one of you will be lost. You'll just lose the ship. But don't let go of your courage. I want you to know today that if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to be willing to lose your ship. Yeah. Uh, oh, this is so bad. The ship represents your comfort zone, doesn't it? No, it doesn't. Where are you getting this nonsense? We love our comfort zone. Our comfort zone is safe. It's secure. Everything is under my control in my comfort zone. Everybody likes me in my comfort zone. Everybody looks like me in my comfort zone. Everybody thinks like me in my comfort zone. Everyone talks like me. We go to brunch on Saturdays. We listen to the same music, same clothes. We're all in the comfort zone. No effort is needed in the comfort zone. Comfort zone. I love my comfort zone. Everything I want is in the comfort zone. Everything I need is in the comfort zone. Except your destiny. (laughs) Oh, wow. My destiny isn't in the comfort zone. This is absurd. And not only that, it is narcissistic and just self-focused like you wouldn't believe. This has nothing to do with Jesus Christ or anything that the Bible actually teaches. But I think you get the point. You know, we're, you know, in this segment, we're trying to warn you and equip you so that you are aware of the Bible-twisting technique that is employed. No wonder Justin Bieber likes this guy so much. Makes perfect sense. <laughs> anyway... We are up on our second break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. Quick break. When we come back, we're going to be checking in with... Uh, uh, Cindy Jacobs pastor his name is Jim Hennessy as he explains to us the process for progress yeah stay tuned don't want to miss it we'll be right back Peter James John and Paul are all dead that means there are no living apostles in the church today you're listening to fighting for the faith Pirate Christian Radio Theater presents death of a salesman are ye a salesman why, yes, I am. Can I interest you in some... You're listening to Byron Christian Radio. 
Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down. Click on the ad banner and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Hey, you. Yeah, you. Listening to this program right now. Have you ever found yourself wishing there was more Fighting for the Faith content that you could listen to and share with your friends? Well, you're in luck. Because we now at Pirate Christian Media have a YouTube channel that we upload content to on a weekly basis. We got programs like Twist Busters, You Don't Have to Be a Cessationist, Messed Up Church, Exclusive Skype Interviews, Pirate Gang Conversations, and our most popular segment, Dumpster Fire. So if you're looking for some extra Pirate Christian Media goodness in your life, head on over to YouTube and search for Fighting for the Faith and subscribe. Two of Fighting for the Faith sermon review time. I'm in one of those moods. Uh oh. Alright, let's do this right. The Ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith for an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermon comes to us via the Trinity Church, Cedar Hill, Jim Hennessy presiding the name of the message, Process for Progress. Important to note that this man that we'll be listening to happens to also be the pastor of Cindy Jacobs. Yeah, this means that they're an NAR church. So let me go ahead and back off on the music. And without any further ado, here's Jim Hennessy and Process for Progress. Here we go. We've been in a series of messages out of Hebrews. We've just been talking about a better life today. I want to talk to you for a few moments about the process for progress. The process for progress. I wanted it to be named Pilgrim's Progress, but somebody already had that one. So we're going to talk about the process for your progress. And would you, with enthusiasm, read our theme verse together? Everyone together, ready, go. So do not. It will be. You need to. 
when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. And then out of Hebrews chapter 6 from the Passion Translation, God the faithful one is not unfair. How can he forget the work you have done for him? He remembers the love you demonstrate as you continually serve his beloved ones for the glory of his name. But, but we long to see you passionately advance. We long to see you passionately advance until the end and you find your hope fulfilled. Do not allow your hearts to grow dull or lose your enthusiasm. But follow the example of those who fully received. How much did they receive? They fully received what God had promised because of their strong faith and their patient endurance. Dear friends, this is God's word. You may be seated. So do, do, you want, do you want to get better? Do you want to progress? You say progress, I'll say progress, however that goes. Uh, so the key word in the book of Hebrews is the word better. And the idea is that your life... The key word in Hebrews is the word better? Get better. You should just, you should get better. Jesus' blood is better. His uh, promises are better. Yeah, his promises are better than the old covenant. See, when you talk about better, you're comparing two things. Uh, The book of Hebrews is doing the comparative work between the old covenant and the new covenant, the blood of the old versus the blood of the new. It ain't saying that your life is going to get better than, oh man, this is already bad. Covenant is better and all of this makes you better. Spoke with a young man after this service last week and he he had been baptized at our plunge party. He had been filled with the Holy Spirit at an encounter. He baptized at a plunge party. <laughs> what is that? That does not sound like holy baptism to me. That sounds... <laughs> Like a barbecue get together. Was there a slip and slide involved? You know, is what I want to know. And then notice how he's he took baptism and now added a second baptism, baptism of the Holy Spirit. Scripture's clear in Ephesians. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism. So churches like the Trinity Church that believes in a second baptism of the Holy Spirit, that's a false baptism. He believed in Jesus. He did everything we asked him to do. And yet, he was discouraged. He was going through a divorce. He had lost confidence in himself and in God. And here's what he said. He said, as soon as I gave my life to Jesus, my world began to fall apart. He said, I don't see how I can keep going. In fact, he said, I don't want to keep going. And I'm concerned about him. I'm concerned about him because the faith that turns back is a big deal. I mean, yeah, you are aware that Jesus told us to expect suffering and persecution. And so what it sounds like he's describing would be the normal Christian life. And you browbeating him and saying, don't give up. Things are supposed to be getting better. That doesn't help him. 
It's a huge, Hebrews says it's a huge danger to the heart. Hebrews is very clear about this, that if you stop going forward with God, you'll never discover the potential of the eternal life that Jesus has endowed, you see. And yet the Hebrew Christians felt exactly like my friend felt. I mean, they, they started out with enthusiasm. They started out with hope. They started out with joy in Jesus. So much momentum, but something wore them down. They stopped their progress. And when they stopped getting better, when they stopped getting better, they got worse. And therefore Hebrews, <laughs> when the people that the epistle to the Hebrews was written to got, didn't get better. What? <laughs> Where did you read this? It's very direct. I mean, this is like in your face stuff. It's, it's in the Bible, chapter five, chapter six of Hebrews over and over this kind of a thing. By now, says the, says the writer of Hebrews. I don't know if it's he, she, I don't know who wrote it. By now, says the author, you ought to be teachers. By now, you ought to have spiritual authority. By now, you ought to have overcoming faith. By, by now, you, you ought to be able to cast out the demon, eat the meat, not the milk. By now, he says, you, 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 you could be, you could be better. So I ask you, you the question of the day, 11 o'clock service, I ask you the simple question, are you progressing? You know, graduates, this is, this is an important question for you to consider. You know, graduates, they call it commencement. I know, I know you think you've had all kinds of high drama and episodes in your life so far, but I'm telling you, commencement, you're just beginning life right now. And all the old people said... I mean, the, and here's the most important thing that I could ever say to people who are commencing their life. It's this. There's a process for your progress. There's a process. And if you'll just stay in the process, your life will turn out exceeding abundantly above what you ask or imagine today. Amen. Just stay in the process. Yeah, that's not what Hebrews is getting at. Stay in the process and your life will be exceedingly abundantly better than, which, by the way, he just ripped off, uh, took out of context a portion of of a benediction found in the book of Ephesians and just threw it in there. And Ephesians doesn't say, if you just stay in the process, your life's going to get better. This is nonsense. Wow, as if somehow Christian discipleship is all about how to make your life better. That's not what's promised to Christians. I, I, I don't know if there's anyone in the 11 o'clock service that kind of goes, you know, by now I, I ought to be better. I, you know, by now our marriage should be better. By now I should have won the lottery, you know. By now, I should have had my breakthrough. By now, my dreams should have been fulfilled. But what I'd like you to do today is just imagine that beginning today, over the next five, ten years, I don't know, that life actually does get better. You know, that you get better in your faith. You get better playing the guitar. You get, you get better, you know, in praying for people or being a better friend to somebody. I'm just saying, life can get better. And some of you are saying, what I would really like is, is, is a better pastor. And you know what? That might happen. Pray hard enough. You know, people make, make, (laughs) I I read this week that people make 30,000 decisions a day, 30,000 decisions a day. What if you just made half of those better than you did last year? 
See? Well, that's the main idea behind Hebrews. Hebrews 11 has a, has a list of heroes, examples to us. And, and I changed the name of the... Yeah, Hebrews 11 is about faith. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. Calling us and the Hebrews to faith in Christ. Faith in his blood. And by the way, the, the temptation that the people who received the epistle to the Hebrews were facing is having come out of Judaism, you know, the new covenant doesn't have all the same smells and bells as the uh, Mosaic covenant Judaism had. There's no temple, there's no sacrifices and all that kind of stuff. Uh, And they were tempted to go back to the old covenant. This is an epistle that calls them to faith in Christ and faith in the new covenant, and faith that he is our high priest, that he is our sacrifice, that that's what this is about. And Hebrews 11 is not, Hebrews itself, especially 11, is not about applying some formula or process so that you can experience progress in making your life better. What Jim Hennessy is doing is fundamentally changing the assumptions regarding why the epistle was written, and by changing those assumptions, he's changing the entire meaning of the entire book. Title over the chapter of Hebrews 11, and, you know, instead of saying Hebrews of faith, I'm going to call these guys in Hebrews 11 the guys who got better list. This is the guys who got better list. Okay. Yeah, no, it's a story about faith. And the tail end of Hebrews 11 will actually prove what he's saying is false. Let me explain. We'll read a few of the verses in the opening portion. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for or the, and the certainty of things not seen. For by faith the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now notice, Cain was murdered. Uh, you know, <laughs> um, and Now before he was taken... He was commended as having pleased God. Without faith, it is impossible to please God, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists, and he rewards those who seek him. By faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became the heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Then it goes on to talk about Abraham. It goes on to talk about Isaac. It talks about Moses. And the people of uh, Israel, you know, led out of captivity. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea. Then it goes on about Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight, Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were, listen to this, and here's the important part, verse 35. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking, 
and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, and mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and dens and in caves of the earth. So you'll note here that uh, Hebrews eleven thirty-five through 38 It's not talking about people who applied a process that made them so they experienced progress in making their lives better. No, they suffered persecution, were sawn in two, lived in deserts. Things got progressively worse and worse and worse for them. What Jim Hennessy is saying is literally contradicted by the very passage he is now turning to and has changed the name of from the great whole of faith passage to the they got better passage this is unbelievable because I, I studied them a little bit th- this week again and you know they turned into heroes he in a time when the world really needed some heroes these are the guys who became the heroes to the world and and they were better they just got better they got better than their enemies they got better than their circumstances they got better than what about the guys who were sawn in two <laughs> what about the guys who were driven out to live in the desert in the wilderness other people were saying about them, they were just better, better, better. <laughs> I mean, take Joshua. You know, he, he was just a helper to Moses. He wasn't that impressive not to start out with. He was afraid all the time, you know, nervous kind of guy, I, I guess. And, 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 and yet he got, he got better. He became the captain of the host of the Lord. He opened up the promised land to the children of Israel. And then, you know, I, I looked again at Abraham. Abraham was a transient, undocumented sheep herder. Notice he's not reading the text. Always a bad sign. He's pointing us to the things he thinks are important. Not to what the Holy Spirit thought was important, because what the Holy Spirit thought was important was actually written down for us. He's not reading it out. The guy did not start out, he he had a bad habit of mishandling the truth, you know. He he started out a mess, but he got better. Became the father of many nations. He got the whole promise that God had given to him. I I studied again this week about David. David was left out in the back 40, you know, in the field. He's the least of the, he's the most unlikely to ever be the king. He probably was just an average harp player, but he got better. Next thing you know, he's the great worshiper of Israel. He's the, you know, he's the great, he's the great king. What, What about Rahab? She's a prostitute. She got better. She opened the gates of the promised land to the children of Israel. What about Ruth? She got better instead of bitter. She she lost her husband. She could have gotten bitter, but she didn't. She just kept getting... She's a beggar in Israel. She's standing on the corner of Oak Cliff with a sign saying, Hungry, help me, give me some food, you you know? But she didn't stay there long because there was a process to her progress and she kept getting better and better and she became the mother of of the Redeemer. I'm just trying to get you to understand. There's a process to your progress. 
And, and what would have happened if they had decided to stop going forward? What, what if any of these guys had said, you know what, I'm good. This is far enough along. How would their stories turn out? How would their children turn out? How would their grandchildren t- turn out? You know, how would we have turned out? Because we are standing on the success of their stories. And how is your story? See, these stories turned out because they persevered. And so Hebrews, you know, the whole idea behind this book is Hebrews is that progress is possible. It's possible now. It's possible. For, in fact, what Hebrews is actually saying is for the New Testament believer, progress is a whole lot more likely than it was for the Old Testament believer. Because in the New Testament, you have a progress towards what? not just angels. You have the blood of Jesus, not just the blood of goats and bulls. You have access to the presence of God, not just access to a priest. And so Hebrews gets right up in their face and says, why aren't you better? But, but the Holy Spirit gets up in my face this week and says, why aren't you better? And, and I've been thinking about it. Candidly, I, I think the answer is a little bit hidden got some code to it, but I do have a theory. Would you like to hear my theory? Please say yes. Yes. Here's my theory. I think the reason that we don't progress at the level that we could progress is because those guys and us, we miss the processes and the places where progress actually occurs. Notice he pitched that as a theory. The reason he had to pitch it as a theory is because this isn't based upon an actual biblical text. This is just the theorizing, subjective guessing on the part of uh, Jim Hennessy. And, and he's going to preach his theory rather than a text. Notice he hasn't read anything out yet from the Bible. I think we just... We just miss the opportunities for progress. I mean, those, those guys in Hebrews, they, they thought that if they bought a lottery ticket, they'd get out of debt. They thought, you know, they thought that an experience with God was the same as learning to rely on God. And those are totally different things. See. So one day Jacob is running for his life from his brother Esau. Jacob has stolen from Esau the blessing, the birthright, and Esau is going to kill him. I mean, he's just going to kill him. Jacob has busted up the family by now. He's running. He's exhausted. He falls asleep in the field. He's using a rock as his pillow. And the Bible says, I'll read from the King James Bible now because some of you need King James Version right now. It says, and behold, I like that, and behold, and then it says that a ladder appeared to Jacob from the earth up into the heaven. An angel started going up and down this ladder. And when Jacob was done with this incredible spiritual experience, this is his testimony. He said, God was in this place. Wait, God was in this place? I thought this was a place of despair. I thought this was a place of desperation. I thought you were running from your life. I thought you, you were afraid that you were going to get killed. God was in this kind of place. And then four chapters later, after this incredible, by the way, when, when God was in this place, there came to Jacob incredible promises about his future, about his children, about his grandchildren. And, and he received all of that and he celebrated it. But four chapters later, 
This looks like biblical teaching, if you don't know what you're looking for. But if you, if biblical teaching actually requires you to really work your way through an actual text in context, he's not doing that. Wrestling with God. And Jacob says this, he says, God, I am not letting you go until you bless me. And if you know this story, you know that he got a, Jacob had a limp the rest of his life after wrestling with God. And I'm just trying to get you to understand that you can have an experience with God, but it's always followed by a process with God. What are you talking about? Chapters later, there's a wrestling going on. Paul progressed after he fell off a horse and was blind. Peter progressed after he almost drowned while he was trying to walk on water. Mary progressed after an inconvenient pregnancy. Jesus progressed after days with the devil. He was tempted by the devil and He came out of that season saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. And I think I'm going to open some blind eyes and unlock some prison doors. You you see, but the progress required the mountain temptation. And Jesus really progressed because he rose from the dead. But in order to rise from the dead, you have to die. Yeah, see, Jesus is the ultimate example of progress. Are, Are you kidding me? There's a process to the progress. And so I'll just ask you again, and you can be more thoughtful this time. Do you really want to progress? Do you want to really want to get better? Because there's a process to the progress. Back in the early days of Trinity, I told told Mark that that I had some stories from the early days. So here they are, Mark. Some early days, there was a, I mean, it was kind of a mess. And there was a childhood friend who showed up. He had been on the mission field forever. And he was so powerful. He'd cast out all these demons in Africa. I mean, he was really a powerful and a great friend. I mean, I love this guy. And, and so he moved to Dallas. He relocated to the area. I was so excited. I'm going to have a partner in the ministry. We're going to transition the atmosphere of Trinity Church. I mean, back in the early days, Trinity was, anyway, so. So I'm talking, I take him to a dinner I cannot afford. And after he's eaten this wonderful food, I say, man, I say, I'm so glad you're here because together we can do great things with Trinity. We can change the whole atmosphere. And he looked, I'll never forget, he looked at me and he said, listen, because the guy was really skilled at demon, casting out demons. He said, listen, Jim. He said, the demons that are in this place are bigger than any I've ever faced in Africa. I would never put my family here. What was that? It was a really bad conversation, but a process for my progress. Because I had to figure out what I was going to do about the demons all by myself with a few of you guys who were back there. But, but then you, 
I'll give you another story. Do you like stories? Yeah, here's another story. And now we're just into story time. Wow. Again, this is where the early days of, of Trinity. And someone came to me with pretty persuasive proof that one of the main givers in our church was sleeping with someone who was not his wife. And you're not supposed to do that in case you're wondering. You're not supposed to sleep with people who you're not married to. And I don't mean sleep, but that's as far as we'll go. So, so, so I went to the guy's house. I had courage back in those days. I went to the guy's house and I said, look. I just need to know, you know, are you sleeping with somebody else besides your wife? Because you're not supposed to do that. If you are, I need to know about it because we want to have a pure church. And I'll just say that conversation did not go well. He called me something and then he, he took his checkbook, checkbook right to another church and I hated it. It was, such a, it was such a hard thing, but it was a process for progress because it forced us... To begin back in those days with a reliance on the resources of God, not on the guy who had the big checkbook. And, and I will say that he ended up making things right with his marriage and, and it, it, all turned, it all turned out good. But I just need to ask you today, what if the thing that you're the most afraid of, the thing that's so hard you're sleeping on, what, what if the thing that's chasing you actually is the opportunity for a process in your life? What if, what, if you- what if? What if that lion chasing you is an opportunity for a process in your life? You know, the process from going from eaten to <laughs> being excrement. Wow, yeah, that's some progress right there. I, this is bizarre. Breakup is your breakthrough. I mean, I mean, what if your problem is the key to your process? You know, what, what if, what if, why aren't you exegeting these texts? Why aren't you actually reading them out so that people can hear God's word in context? This place is the place of God. What if, what if this is the wrestling? I mean, Beck said one day, she said, I will. And then a few months later, she said, I do. And I thought, perfect. She'll cook all my meals. She'll raise our kids and clean the house. And we'll put a picket fence around the parsonage and it'll be amazing. It was amazing. Marriage turned, turned traumatic. But we persevered, went through a process, made some progress, learned how to love one another. Come on, somebody, I'm preaching so good to you right now. The Bible, Hebrews says, by now you ought, you know, you ought to have some progress to you. But I understand why people draw back, why people say, well, I, I don't know, because progress feels like pain. And progress feels like pain because it is pain. And some of you are saying, if this is what it takes to get conformed into the image of the Son of God, keep me in kindergarten. It's too, it's too hard. I don't know if there's anyone in the 11 o'clock service that says, you know, this doesn't just really feel like my place of progress because this is not the blessing I was promised. This is not the way I thought life would would turn. This is not the way I want my story to go. My dad was diagnosed with cancer on Christmas Day. Merry Christmas. You you know, and, and, you know, 
None of us, that did not feel like it was the beginning of a process for progress. And yet they will tell you, you hang out with them. They will tell you that after 75 years of walking with Jesus, the last six months, they have found more intimacy with their savior, more faith, more word of God coming alive in their spirit, better worship. I think they've given more in the offerings lately. You know, he came by my office last week to say, I just want you to know that the doctor says my body is perfect. 82 year old body can be perfect. His body is perfect. I'm just saying your problems might be an open door for your progress. And Hebrews, Hebrews offers really clear ideas about how the process goes. And, um, you know, there was a guy at the Waxahachie campus and said, I don't think I need to get better. And I was like, yeah, you do. Yeah, you do. Because we need you to progress. We need some heroes. You know, I, I, uh, I should spend more time on it, trying to motivate you for progress, but let me just give you three or four reasons. We should progress because, number one, it's worth it. The life God wants to give you is spectacular. Number two, we should progress because we were, we were, because the hope of the world requires progress. What do you mean the life promised to give you is spectacular? Which biblical text says that again? Progressing Christians is the only hope this world really has. Number three, we should progress because we were designed for progress. Glory to glory to glory. That's the key to the whole thing. And number four, we should desire progress because one day we're going to stand before God and get judged on the level of our progress. Which text says that God's going to judge me based upon the level of my progress? I'd like to see that text, please. So I've got four or five things that I think are ingredients to the process. And I'm only going to share one with you. All right. Where is this ingredients list found in Scripture? I'd like to find it laid out as the ingredient list for progress. It's in which book of the Bible, which chapter, which verses? Um, these are the next three or four sermons. So maybe that's a teaser. You'll, you'll come back. Number, here's the first thing. You want to, in the process to your progress, number one, cling to truth. Yeah, that would require me to flee your church because so far there's been no truth and a lot of lies in this sermon. Cling to truth. 4.14, we must cling in faith to all we know to be true. 7.22, so all of this magnifies the truth that we have a superior covenant with God. I love the word cling because it makes me think of a roller coaster at Six Flags or it makes me think of the first time I got on a horse, you know, I'm, I'm going to cling because sometimes unexpectedly life gets really hard or really fast. You get a lot of G's pulling against your face, you know, that, that sort of thing. How many of you know a roller coaster is only fun if you have something to cling to. This is a time for a commercial. I'm just going to announce it real quickly. We will have a summer Bible reading plan that will be available to you on June the 1st. We're going to ask all the family, all the friends together to read the Bible. It'll be illustrated. We've got some interactive things. A Bible reading plan because, listen, you have to know the truth in order to cling to the truth. 
Some people just aren't reading their Bible, and we're going to make you feel really guilty about it. All right. So. Yeah, you should feel guilty for not actually preaching it in the sermon. You, they would know God's word much better if you actually read it out and exegeted texts. When your brother wants to kill you, when you get knocked off your horse and lose your sight, when you're sinking in the storm, when just a few minutes ago you were walking on the water, when you find drugs in your teenager's drawer, when your job falls apart, when you discover that your spouse has been unfaithful, I'm going to give you the best advice you could ever have right out of the book, right out of Hebrews. Cling in faith to all you know to be true. Cling in faith to all you know to be true. In chapter four, there's a motto for Hebrews and it's simply this. We can enter God's promised places. We can enter the place of rest. And he says, today you can do it. And then he says, for, here's how you can do it. For we have the living word of God, which is full of energy and it pierces more sharply than a two-edged sword. It will even penetrate to the very core of our being where soul and spirit, bone and marrow meet. It interprets and reveals the true thoughts and secret motives of our hearts. There is not one person who can hide their thoughts from God for nothing is concealed. Everything is exposed and defenseless before his eyes. Now I'm going to say something that sounds really old fashioned, but I want you to appease me and say, amen. God's word is true. Because it's true, it penetrates It energizes, it differentiates between untrue things that we're always carrying around. It peels off our masks. It it, it peels back our defenses and the techniques of life that we learned. This is the process to peel us open, to expose us. The Greek word that's used here for truth is the word aletheia. And, And it doesn't primarily mean there's a proposition of truth. Two plus two equals four. That's not what this is talking about. The word literally means to come out of hiding. Truth means the state of not being hidden. And I don't know if you've been in a restaurant lately. I like to watch people when I'm in a restaurant and I'm watching these people and they're together as a family or as a couple and they're hiding behind their cell phones and their iPads and they're doing all their kind of stuff. And and I just think we've developed a culture that is really good at hiding. We are hiding behind our costumes. We're hiding behind our accomplishments. We're hiding behind our Instagram images. We're hiding behind our sarcasm. And, And I've just come today to preach to you that progress means we got to come out of hiding. We got to cling to the truth. God could have put humans anywhere in all of his creation, but he put them in a place where Satan was slithering around. I think he did it because he thought as long as the humans would stay in communion with me, we'll have dominion over the devil. That the humans will have dominion over the devil as long as they're walking and talking with me. But one day God shows up and no one is around. God says. So notice, he, he thinks he knows why God did what he did. And he gave us information that's not in the Bible. This is blasphemy, adding to the scriptures. How are you? And from the shadows comes a voice that says, we're hiding Enter into the human psyche, primal untruth number one. 
Adam believes that his sin has turned God into his enemy. Adam's soul says, well, I'm unloved now. God, there's no way God could love me. I broke the rule. I, I, how could, and, and the idea that God doesn't really love me stopped the progress. Um, I think sin had a profound decimating impact on humanity. That's kind of the point. Then God asks, why are you hiding? And they said, we're naked. And the second primal lie began. This would be a good time to have some musicians come because I'm, I'm bringing this home. Oh, yeah. We need the musicians to come manipulate us emotionally. Yeah, that's what they're there for. Um, the second primal lie began. And the lie, Adam believes that we're unsafe unless we hide. Adam is like, dude. We- what? I have to cover up because if I'm seen, I'll be exploited. If I'm seen, if they see me, they, if they know me, I'm going to be hurt. And so the relationship with God was shattered, but the relationship among them, the, the, the man and the woman and everyone, society was shattered because I'm not just hiding from God. I'm going to have to hide from you. I'm better off alone. Stop the progress. And then God asked, why did you eat the fruit? Adam said, Eve made me do it. Eve said, no. Adam said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she. You see, God, you know, God was blamed by Adam. Satan made me do it. And the third primal lie began. Cue sappy music. This is an emotional manipulation technique designed to create the false impression that God, the Holy Spirit, is now descending on the audience, getting them to make decisions, to commit to something or one kind or another. Oh, man. This, and notice, this guy still has refused to actually biblically exegete any text, read it in context, and show us what it really says. That's sure proof that you're being 100% manipulated. I'm not responsible. It's not my fault. Somebody else made me do it. I'm a victim. There's nothing I can do about it. I can't change the way things are. It happened to me. I, there's, no, there's no hope. Stopped the progress. Do you see why you need to cling to the truth? Because deep in the human heart are three powerful untruths. And the first is... <laughs> I sin so God can't love me. I'm not loved. Number two, I'm better off alone. If I hang out with you, you're going to hurt me. Number three, it's not my fault. There's nothing I can do. So the world is hopeless. And I'll just tell you the consequences of that Eden conversation were pretty severe. Because God said, look, if you're going to stay in hiding, there's never going to be progress for the whole world. And so you're going to have to leave the garden. I don't think leaving the garden. was God didn't say that. You added that to the scriptures. Punishment for them. I think it was the only way he could begin the process of getting them free from the lies that had come into their heart. You see, from then until now, God has been seeking us. I know you think you're seeking God, but I'm telling you, he's been seeking you a whole lot more than you've ever been seeking him. He's been seeking to pull you out of the bushes and pull you out of your fears and pull you out of your fake news. Don't you think that Jesus' death on the cross might have something to do with God's love and restoring us 
to God Mm -hmm, because of our sin. And pull you out of your masks and your insecurities because our life was designed for better. Come on, somebody, out of us is supposed to flow rivers of living water. We're supposed to carry the glory of the Lord inside us. We're supposed to have dominion over the darkness and dominion over the devil. But when you're clinging to the bushes, you're stopping the progress. Uh huh. Says no biblical text anywhere. You've really botched this. And uh, it, it sounds to me like he's denying the doctrine of original sin. So Steph, Steph Curry. Do you know Steph Curry? You know who he is? Early service didn't know who he was. The greatest basketball player of all time. Yes, he is. Don't argue with me. He is the best. He, um, he cussed last week. Did you see it? It was, it was like the camera was right on his face. And he said, this is my... And I'm not going to tell you what he said. House. He said, this is my blank house. It was horrible. And it was on the world. The whole world saw him cuss. His mother is a Christian. And she got on him. And he apologized. And, and he said, does anybody else see this story? I'm not making this up. He apologized. And and in his apology, here's what he said. He said, this is not who I am. Now I heard, I've heard people say that like, I did this, but this is not who I am. And I'd always roll my eyes and go, right. If you did it, that's who you are kind of, but I like Steph Curry. So I'm giving him a, so here's the deal. Had a whole new revelation. Steph Curry's like, that's not who I am. And and I want to, And I say, okay, that's progress. Because when I know who I'm not, I'm on the journey toward knowing who I am. Really, like one of the main takeaway points for your sermon was not actually based on any biblical text, but an incident where a basketball player had to apologize for cussing. I I just wish there was somebody in the 11 o'clock service who's actually been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, who's been brought in as the family of God, who's been given a new name and a new nature, somebody who carries the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead, somebody that has activated the same anointing that Jesus... I wish there's somebody who could say, I am... Activated the same anointing as Jesus. Wow. That's crazy, blasphemous, and crazy. Who my enemy says I am, I am not what I used to do. I am not what my coach said about me. I am not unloved. I am not unwanted. I am not better off alone. I am not my circumstances. I am not without hope. And you're not actually preaching Christ. Yeah, I want to point that out too. It's not who I am. Because the process begins when you cling to the truth. By the way, um, Scripture makes it clear that uh, forgiveness of sins comes with, well, confessing of sins. 
First John chapter 1 says this, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him out to be a liar, and his word is not in us. When somebody screws up, like a basketball player, and does something and then feels the need to apologize, saying, that's not who I am, is not an apology. Sounds a lot like what First John condemns. When you sin, you say, I've sinned. I've screwed up. I'm responsible. I'm the man. That guy, in his apology, said, I'm not the man. He didn't apologize. That wasn't a confession. And this pastor, <clears throat> Jim Hennessy, has held that up as a model example of something we need to emulate in our lives. Nonsense. I haven't learned to raise anybody from the dead yet or cure cancer. Never overturn the money changers in the temple. There's a lot of things, you know, I, I, I'm, I struggle sometimes with my anger or sometimes to love people the way they need to be loved. I, I'm, pro- I'm not the best husband. I, I'm not the best father. I'm not the best preacher. But I, I'm asking you to cling to the truth with me that I am the righteousness of Christ. I am the child of the King. I am a conqueror. I am more than a conqueror through Christ. I am in Christ and Christ is in me. And here's what I want to declare. Over to- I am. I am. These are like demonic declarations. These are like the Isaiah 14. I will ascend to the highest heights. I, I, I. Yeah. Uh-huh. Church, the truth is greater than the lie. The truth is greater than the lie. And if you would cling to the truth... There's no truth in this sermon to cling to. Through the process into the progress. So Beck and I are going to go to dinner somewhere. I have a quick wedding out in Legacy Park. And then we're going to go to dinner somewhere in Dallas. Because we like Dallas restaurants. And, and, but I'm not going to go to Cheesecake Factory. Because if I go to Cheesecake Factory, I, I just have the toughest time. The food's great, but I can't ever choose. The menu is so thick. I can't choose what I'm going to eat. So I need, like, if I go to Cheesecake Factory, I'm like, just tell me what to get, Katie. I don't even know what to get. Just tell me what to get. And, uh, and I wish God would treat me like that. I wish God would just put a leash around my neck and say, go here, do this, say that, do this. But, but he doesn't. What, what he does is he sends the Holy Spirit guide us into all truth. doesn't send the Holy Spirit to force us or coerce us or blackmail us. He sends the Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us. And what, what I believe the Holy Spirit is saying to us right now is that we can be confused about a lot of things. I honestly don't know when the rapture is going to take place. 
I'm confused. I'm not going to tell you what else I'm confused about. I'm confused about a lot of things, but I am not confused about the power of the blood of Jesus. I am not confused about the resurrection. I am not confused about the second coming of the Lord. I am not confused about the mission of the body of Christ. I am not confused about the power of the Holy Spirit that abides in me. And if I could just cling to the things I know, cling in faith to the things I know to be true. get through the process into the progress and we'll be better now we started concluding our services in a little bit of a different way without anyone exiting I want us to stand together and we're going to pray over this message that it wouldn't just be information that it would become a life giving word to our hearts yeah in order for it to have been a life giving word you would have actually needed to rightly handle a biblical text and proclaim Christ, repentance, forgiveness of sins, you know, things like that. So would you just begin the process by lifting your heart with your hands? If this word means anything to you about getting better, if there's anyone that wants to welcome the kind of faith that gets you through into a better place, there's anybody that says, I'm in a tough place, but God is in this place. I want you just to begin to thank God right now that you have some truth. You might not have all the truth. You might not have enough. You've got, you've got enough to hold on to right now. Father, I want to thank you that your destiny over us is better, 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 better. Lord, I want to thank you that you have called us from this glory to a new glory. And another glory after that. I want to thank you. That Father, even in the times. Done. Wow. Utterly Christless. And literally, I mean, as much as he wanted to make it look like he was preaching the scriptures, he wasn't. Far, far from preaching the scriptures. This guy was just making up his own theology. Retelling the stories and, and like ignoring the text, yet claiming the text were teaching the principles he was teaching, but, yeah, they don't. And the person who got lost in the mix, Jesus, was there a clear gospel presentation? Not even close. You Did you learn anything about what Christ did for you? Bet you didn't. Because Hennessy didn't preach Christ. He preached himself. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Christian. Till tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ, his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen. <laughs>